0: Inside the Banjoverse, a podcast exploring the minds of folk music's great artists. If you like what you hear, please subscribe now and do leave us a review. It makes a big difference. This is Enda Scall from Irish bluegrass crossover band We Banjo Three. Before you freak out, don't worry. There's actually four of us, and mostly just one banjo. That's me. It gives me great pleasure to talk today to Alison Brown, a much lauded uh, banjo player living in Nashville. And Alison, I'm going to say uh, that when I started touring in the US for the very first time uh, 20 years ago this year, uh, and I was in my mid-twenties, an Irish banjo player in the truest sense that I really had focused hugely on Irish banjo. And I didn't know an awful lot about bluegrass banjo. Uh, this is a long-winded introduction now, but it's going to make sense in a second. Uh, I knew, I, obviously, I knew about bluegrass music to a certain extent, but not to a huge extent. And we played in Chicago, and uh, we have a friend in Chicago who's a music journalist, uh, writes about Irish music, radio show host, and he gave me a CD, one of these burn, you know, burner CDs with uh, bluegrass essentials. And he said, "Indy, you got to go and listen to this. And it, I've since found out it's had like Alison Krauss and uh, Ricky Skaggs and all of the greats. But the standout track on the CD that he gave me was Leaving Cottondale. Uh, now, there was no track listing. It was just a CD. And it's only years later when I got that album and I was like, oh, my God, this is Alison Brown, it's Bela Fleck, and that's your Grammy-winning track Blew my mind uh, 20 years ago. I listened to it over and that track over and over and over again. And I had it on today, and it's still uh, absolutely mind-blowing piece of music. was my introduction to you and we've met over the years since then and got to know you a little bit but i just thought that was such such an interesting interesting way to come across your music and to come across you as a banjo player was like with one of these absolutely outstanding pieces of music what that's it, twenty twenty one 21 years ago that album right
1: uh yeah well first of all thank you that was a lovely introduction <laughs> and that was it's all going to be downhill from there i'm afraid um <laughs> Yeah, we, Fairweather came out. Uh, I think it was in two thousand and one. So I guess it was twenty or t- yeah, twenty years ago. Maybe it came out. I honestly can't really remember. It's somewhere buried in the mists of time. But that's really nice of you to say. I mean, I wrote that tune, and when I was playing with Allison Krause and Union Station, and um, it was basically kind of an homage to a, a week that the band spent staying at my grandma's house down in Cottondale, Florida which um, kind of culminated in my grandmother asking with a bass player to shoot her dog. And so we thought we better get out of there. And we were driving out of town and saw a sign that said, leaving Cottondale. And so I knew that I needed to write that tune. (laughs) Um, And so, but not too long after that, I recorded it on my very first record, which I did for Vanguard Records called Simple Pleasures. And then, not too long after that record came out, I was in Japan, and a great friend and banjo player whose name is Taku Kawamata, he had figured out a harmony part to the tune. And I thought it it was just a a great sound with it being twin banjo. So when I was making Fair Weather, 10 years after that, uh, I thought it'd be great to get Bela and do it as a twin banjo tune. So. The the tune owes its inspiration to a lot of diverse and disparate sources, I guess.
0: <laughs> I just want to hear about the banjo player and your grandmother's dog. <laughs>
1: um, well, the dog didn't get shot, but that did inspire another tune called Shoot the Dog, which I recorded on my second record. <laughs> um, and the other banjo player, Taku Kawamata, he's a wonderful guy. Um, I got to know him when he was living in the States. He was a sushi chef in L.A. for a time. Um, But he's been back in Japan for many, many years. And when our band did a tour in Japan, his family actually hosted an incredibly memorable show for us in Tochigi Prefecture. So it's not that far from Tokyo. um, That was just amazing in terms of um, its Japanese authenticity. (laughs) And also, I know you've played in Japan, too. There's nothing like there's nothing else in the world like the heart of the Japanese people for our music and it's just it's just so utterly surprising because it's something that's you know not part of their culture even the way um, this music is more related to Irish culture obviously American culture but for Japanese culture it's completely appropriated and yet there's so much passion for it and I don't know I, I never am happier playing music than I am in Japan I just think those the people there bring so so much love to it.
0: yeah, isn't that so curious because it's as you say, it's such a completely different culture to Ireland or to America. But one of the things we've noticed is that the reverence that they have for ancient cultures and for cultures that they love is second to none. And uh, I don't know. did mm-hmm. you ever come across the Irish uh, duo that were known as Bridget and Mary uh, Paddy and Paddy and Bridget? They were they were a Japanese couple and they moved to Ireland. This is probably 20 or 30 years ago and they learned Irish music. And as the cliche goes, they became more Irish than the Irish themselves. And so the locals christened them Paddy and Bridget. And they brought out at least one album, if not more, under the title Paddy and Bridget. And these two Japanese people playing. But the reverence that they had for the pure tradition of Irish music was incredible.
1: That's fascinating. Well, I'm going to be searching them out because, I mean, that kind of thing just really blows me away. I think partly because I came to mu- to bluegrass music as a Southern Californian. So on some level, I was like kind of apart from the culture that created the music I loved so much. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated with the Japanese love of bluegrass. But the other thing is, you know, if you look at the occupation after World War II, you would think, you would think that, people would not embrace the music of the conquerors, the wrong word, but you know, the winning team, but instead it it was really kind of the opposite and a lot of people discovered bluegrass music listening to armed armed forces radio after the war, and that's really how the bluegrass community was built in Japan, so that's fascinating too. Um, But yeah, and then of course there's bluegrass music in Prague, which is where my the banjo I play comes from, and that's fa- another fast fascinating story because they came to bluegrass music as a way of thumbing their noses um, after the Soviet invasion of the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia, I guess it would be. And so to sit around and play bluegrass music was a way to defy the government. It was a kind of a, I would say, silent protest, but not quite silent, silent protest. So, yeah, music is a a fascinating international language.
0: That's, I didn't know that about uh, Prague and about the bluegrass uh, music in the Czech Republic. That's absolutely fascinating. And I know that in Irish culture, that there there's a, an entire form of dancing, traditional Irish dancing called set dancing, and that it came about through Irish people essentially taking the mick out of the lords and the ladies in uh, when the English were in occupation and they would watch these very formal uh, English dances and then the Irish servants who were working in the houses would go outside and they would do a a kind of a a peasant version of the dance which was like way more fun and and that's just become this really Mm -hmm. vibrant form of dance in Ireland so it's a very similar story. Take me back to Southern California and your first introduction to the banjo and to bluegrass music. How did that happen?
1: Uh, Well, like a lot of people of my generation, it was Earl Scruggs and uh, kind of the convergence of Earl Scruggs and um, network television in my case. Um, You know, it was Beverly Hillbillies and Bonnie and Clyde and hearing that music, you know, on the television. And then my dad got a copy of the Foggy Mountain Banjo album and he, we were taking, he was taking mm-hmm. guitar lessons. He and my mom both were from a law student who was also a, a banjo player. And he lent us the album. We made our cassette tape of it. <laughs> and uh, my dad labeled it Hillbilly Music and I just fell in love with the sound of the instrument. It's really, you know, it seemed so quintessentially American to me, but really not a part of my American, immediate American experience. And so I was really drawn to the sound of the instrument, but also, you know, the culture that created it too. Um, And so when I was about 16 years old, well, from the time I was about 13, really through high school, I had the very good fortune of being able to hang around with Stuart Duncan, who was also a bluegrass um, smitten teen. There weren't that many of us. (laughs) In fact, I think we might've been a party of two. And uh, his dad drove us around to the festivals back east, as we would have said, um, to experience, you know, real bluegrass culture, Southern Appalachian, you know, culture and bluegrass festivals. Because our knowledge of it really was just going to the festivals in California, of which there were some. But we could really only see like the big bands. Maybe you'd see one a year because it was so hard and expensive to get to California, especially back then in the 70s. Um, So like you might see Jim and Jesse one year and then maybe Bill Monroe would come the next year. But it wasn't like these festivals we saw advertised in Bluegrass Unlimited magazine that just had the cavalcade of stars on Saturday night. And then there were more on Sunday night. So Stuart's dad, Emmett, um, drove us around back east and he would let us pick out a festival out of the pages of Bluegrass Unlimited magazine. And we'd go to that festival on Saturday and then he'd drive all night. Take us to another festival on Sunday, so we got to see, we got to see all those amazing bands, and we got to also experience that culture, which is really different from the Southern California culture. I mean, I grew up in a beach town in San Diego, La Jolla. So
0: it was great. I'm I'm always struck at how important uh, parental influence is. You know, it plays a role in in somebody taking up an instrument and then in certain aspect being made to practice maybe but when you have a parent that's willing to bring kids and expose them to the magic of a festival or you know texas fiddling competition or in ireland we have the the flak hills which is the huge gatherings of musicians and sessions that go all night uh it's it's so so important because there was there's lots of people that play music but then never get exposed to the society of music, that they can become part of the community. And I think that's where they develop into musicians.
1: Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with you. And I think that's one of the reasons that I love traditionally rooted music is because it is intergenerational music. And so you can like have your, you know, Stuart's dad take you to a festival or or your family. And there's a place really for all the generations in the community that springs up at the festival. And that's a really different thing, I think, than like fashion-rooted music, pop music, which I think of as kind of fashion. It's sort of here today, gone tomorrow, and it's really geared for, you know, people between 14 and 21 years old or whatever. You know, it's for it's a young thing, and they don't necessarily even want people over that age to be participating in it because then it becomes less cool, <laughs> you know? Um, so I completely agree with what you're saying. I was fortunate because my parents were both lawyers and they spent a little bit of time in the cow pastures of Southern California taking me to festivals. But it was an incredible relief when Stuart's dad kind of, you know, would invite me to go along with them and then they would get their weekends off, which I can completely relate to. So I spent a lot of time with Stuart and his family, um, you know, up at their house on weekends and we did a lot of shows around L.A. and I would take you know, Amtrak up from San Diego to LA and they'd pick me up and we'd spend the weekend playing at different festivals or banjo fiddle contests or, you know, got to play legendary rooms like the Ice House and the Troubadour and the Banjo Cafe, which you would have loved. Um, You know, the Palomino Club, all those places that you hear about when, you know, you hear about even like the country rock scene in LA in the seventies, there was room for bluegrass acts in those rooms also back then. So that was super cool i was incredibly fortunate because um, i don't think that my parents tolerance for going to bluegrass festivals certainly not like in Scioto furnace ohio would have been very high <laughs> so <laughs> it was very lucky for me
0: Allison, in terms of um we'll say learning how to play and the technical proficiency that you've uh, achieved over the years uh, was that something that happened naturally is five-string banjo something that you need to learn very carefully at the start in order to develop very good technique? Or is it more of a kind of a gentle curve?
1: Hmm, that's a good question. I think that I think of five-string banjo as being very technique driven. And I think that you can get into a lot of trouble if you don't start off with somebody who, you know, kind of make sure you're using the right kind of picks, like don't use plastic finger picks you know, or don't use like an all metal thumb pick or whatever. I mean, there are kind of big mistakes you can make developing your right hand that would set you back. I had some lessons, not a ton of lessons, but there was actually a San Diego Bluegrass Club that met at the Shakey's Pizza Palace once a month. And I learned a lot just from jamming with people in the parking lot. And that's, you know, kind of related back to what you're saying about like the festival community it extends even to jam sessions behind the pizza palace at a, at a san diego bluegrass club meeting people are so generous and so committed to playing the tradition forward that if you're a youngster or really any age and any level um, people are always so you know generous about showing you what they know and trying to give you some tips and help you along and i found that to be the case even when i was you know just a 14 year old kid going up to jd crow and JD saying, here, you want to try my banjo? It's like, wow, you know, that kind of generosity is really to be found at all levels of our community, which is one of the things I think is really great. But to get back to your question, I think that if you're learning to play five string banjo, it's probably a really good idea to have a human teacher or or some kind of interactive experience, even if it's via Skype or you know, artist works platform or something like that to make sure that your right hand gets off to the right start. because for me, that was the hardest thing to get used to. Playing with metal picks on your fingers and getting those picks to where they'll they'll do exactly what you need them to do and not get caught on the strings. that's a hard that's a really hard thing. And even like breaking in finger picks is something that I think all banjo players dread having to do. I mean, I've talked to Bela about it, and he's mentioned, you know, losing his picks in a hotel room or whatever, and just the agony of breaking in a new set of picks. Because they need to fit your fingers the way climbing shoes would fit your feet. You know, they're, they they kind of really need to be a part of your fingers. So all that to say that if you're trying to learn to play three-finger style, get a good teacher to make sure you get off on the right foot i would say but on the right hand (laughs) with your picks the right kind of picks fitting right angled right attacking the string right that your wrist is kind of angled right so that you're getting the best tone on the strings all those kinds of things are really really important
0: i'm 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 partly jealous in a way because uh i still haven't found the perfect pick for irish banjo and even the ones that I have that I really like, I go through a minimum of two every gig and then throw them away. So I'm going through like hundreds of picks uh, a year because once the pointy edge goes off them, that's that's it. They're kind of they're done. But there seems to be within five string banjo, this craft um, and almost an adoration of particular pick makers because i I follow a few guys on instagram and they have like these beautiful new picks that are made by so and so uh the idea that you can get them mold them to your fingers and then have them for a really significant length of time (laughs) i can only dream of something like that
1: well (laughs) yeah don't over romanticize it because i'm really jealous of you having like a disposable pick because imagine like committing your life to not losing two little pieces of metal and a plastic round thing. you know, because if you lose them, it's just like incredible heartache and misery. <laughs> so the fact that you can just consume them, I'm really jealous
0: of. <laughs> You're listening to Inside the Banjaverse in conversation with Alison Brown when when did you know that you wanted to be a full-time musician, professional musician. I, your, your parents were lawyers. Honestly... Like, did, did, did they have a moment when they were like, oh my God, you're not going to go to law school and follow in the family tradition?
1: Right. So, um, I really grew up being encouraged to think of banjo as a fascinating application to talk about, um, at cocktail parties in my future career as a, really, they were hoping for a doctor. And um, I did pre-med halfway through college and then kind of moved away from that. And so after that, they were thinking lawyer or whatever, but certainly not banjo player. And you're a parent and I'm a parent. And so we can both relate to that. (laughs) Um, But let's see. So I went off to college, like fully expecting to be a professional of some sort, and then went to business school and got an MBA and spent a couple years in investment banking working for one of the big Wall Street firms in public finance, which is basically underwriting um, bond issues for public works, kind of things has to do with American tax law and all that. And I can see your eyes glazing over. And that's really kind of what it was like for me. I did it for a few years and um, really came to appreciate that there are people who love getting up in the morning thinking about how you could structure a 30-year bond issue, like what kind of different interest rate schemes you could come up with and whatever, and come to work loaded for bear, ready to do that. And I didn't feel that way about it. Um, So I allowed myself like a six-month hiatus because I really wanted to work on um, jazz guitar, actually, and to see if I could write some of my own tunes. And Stuart Duncan and I did a record right after we graduated from high school Called pre sequel, and uh, we wrote a few tunes for that recording. But I really hadn't done that much writing of my own, and it always seemed like such a big mystery to me. You know, how do you come up with a beautiful melody like, <clears throat> like one like the theme to Mash? To me, is an incredibly beautiful melody. How did How did Johnny Mercer write something like that? So I allowed myself a short hiatus to work on music, and then I fully intended to get like a respectable corporate gig after that. And as luck would have it. Um, Allison Krauss, who I knew through a mutual friend was, you know, needing a banjo player to fill in for a weekend. And she called me up and I flew out to Champaign, Illinois and did actually did a couple weekends with her and it went really well. So she offered me the gig. So I really kind of slipped into being a professional banjo player. I didn't think of it as something that was something that you could be. And in, in fairness, you know, in the seventies, you think back that far, even the eighties, there weren't that many like examples of instrumentalists who were making a very robust living playing banjo. So I could un- completely understand my parents' lack of enthusiasm when I called them up and told them that I was going to leave my investment banking gig to become, <laughs> to work on banjo music, you know? But I think that that's really changed. I mean, Bela obviously has carved a, a incredibly wide path in bluegrass in so many ways and David Grisman before him too is showing how an instrumentalist in this music or kind of in this general music could be a band leader and do really well with it. Um, so I think that the the ideas of how you can make a living in this music have really expanded since since back then. But for me it wasn't a conscious decision. It was definitely um, you know, setting my MBA aside and joining Allison Krauss's band. And then when, you know, after about three years, I'd done a couple records, or at least one record of my own, and was working on a second record, and then spent a year as band leader for Michelle Shocked, and um, that's when Gary West and I met. I actually brought him into that band to play bass, and we spent a year doing that world tour, and then you know started to think about really how does one create a living in music, and. If you are an instrumentalist, it still is a challenge. I mean, there's t- completely a way to do it. As you know, you guys, you've done it so brilliantly um, with We Banjo 3, but it still is a challenge and it still does require one to think like in a 360 kind of way. It's like you've got the, the performance side of things of your own music, but in our case, we were really interested in artist development of other artists. And so that's really kind of part of the inspiration for launching Compass Records, which we did in 1993 the kind of the predecessor of Compass Records um so you know really since that time we've kind of been tilling both fields simultaneously like the artist side and the business side
0: mm. what do you look for in a new artist so if you, you you do you go and seek out new artists and go this is somebody that we can we can craft that we can make a career for and uh, so what do you look for and then you know, what do you you see as your role in the development of an artist?
1: Oh, those are two really good questions. Um, Well, you know, since we're, we have the privilege of being out there playing at festivals, you know, we have a bit of an ear to the ground as as far as what's happening. But, you know, and sometimes we'll discover an artist at a festival and feel like, yeah, this is definitely somebody that we want to work with and get in on the ground level. Um, But, you know, a lot of times these days, It's really challenging for a record label to do their part if an artist hasn't gotten their career to a certain place. Um, The way the business is moving, like if you want to, you know, kind of create awareness for an artist from coast to coast, they need to be moving at least as fast as the record label is moving. That means that they already need to be touring. They already need to, you know, have developed a fan base to some extent. The barriers to entry that existed when we started the label don't really exist anymore. It used to be that if you wanted to make a record, you had to have a rich uncle or, you know, to be able to afford to get in a studio and record on two-inch tape, or you had to get a record deal. And now really, you know, for better or for worse, or for worse or for better, really anybody can make a record, kind of sitting at a record that they're sitting at their kitchen table and get it out there through DistroKid or CD Baby or something like that. So... That's the other thing that we look for, really. It needs to be somebody who has a huge fire in the belly for what they're doing and has already taken those kinds of steps and has already established a a presence for themselves in the social media space, in the digital space, and then physically in the touring space. So I guess it's a combination of things, but it's really interesting how the business has changed. Um, On some level, I feel like it's become more democratic because, you know, the old gatekeepers of record labels aren't really, you know, kind of the gatekeepers that they used to be. But at the same time, we're seeing a whole crop of younger artists that really have no sense for the, the power of like, of retail, you know, support, for example, like store record stores still do exist. And placement in a record store is still a viable thing to have. It's a quiver in your, uh, it's one of the arrows in your quiver. You know, it's a piece of the pie, and a lot of younger artists have grown up without thinking that that's, you know, kind of a thing to even aspire to. And, you know, a lot of younger artists, too, think about, you know, what they're doing as a complete cottage industry. I can cover it all myself, but, you know, as an artist, I can say that it's really tough. I'm sure you can attest to this, too. It's really tough to be a creative and drive the business side of your art. And I think that it's really a good thing to have good partners that understand what you're trying to do, that can help find opportunities for you, that can help lift up what you're doing and get it greater visibility. I mean, you really, at the end of the day, it's, it does become a team sport. It's really hard to do it by yourself.
0: Mm -hmm. Would you say it's easier now or harder now for an artist to, to kind of break out, to, to get to where they have a career or a living from music? You can put on rose-tinted glasses and go. Oh, you know, if you were really good in the '80s and you brought out a, a record, that there was a way, a direct route to radio. There was a direct route to festivals, and now there's so much music, as you said, because so many people can record an album at the drop of a hat, and so it's much harder to rise above the noise and become seen. Is that is that true?
1: That's how I feel about it. Honestly, there's so much out there that you know. For example, I just. Uh, co-produced a a track for Bobby Osborne, the legendary bluegrass artist, you know, voice of Rocky Top. And I produced his last record, uh, came out a few years ago. And for his birthday this year, I gifted him a recording session. It's like, would it be fun to go in the studio and, or not go in the studio together, but wouldn't it be fun to record some new music? And he was totally excited to do that. So we did a version of Merle Haggard's White Line Fever, and we put it out as a digital single and Sierra Hall played on it. And Tim O'Brien sang on it. You know, we got like the cast of the guys and girls that you get in Nashville and Bobby sang it up at his house and we put it all together and put it out. And so that's out there on Spotify where I understand there's like 60,000 new tracks a day coming out on Spotify. So it's one of those 60,000. And at the the same time, my daughter, who's now a freshman at Berklee College of Music, is recording her own songs in her dorm room and putting them out on Spotify through DistroKid. And so that track that we've, you know, it paid the session fees for, paid the engineer and had the studio and, you know, did all that work that, you know, the traditional work that goes into creating music is competing against something that, you know, my daughter wrote and, you know, kind of threw up on the DSPs on her own, just in her dorm room. And so, yes, all that to say, I think it's really, it is such a crowded field right now that it is much harder to get things noticed. And then in terms of just making a living doing it, you know, if you think about the fact that I think you need something like, I'll pull out my calculator and figure out the number, but you know, to make like a minimum wage living, how many, how many streams you need? Like if, you know, if you're, if you need to earn $30,000 a year to make a living and the average Spotify stream pays, you know, 0.0032 cents. You need like 10 million streams a year. That's a huge number. I mean, that really probably puts you in the top, I don't know what, 5% of all things that are on Spotify. So I don't really think that that's fair, honestly, that the DSPs are paying such a low rate and taking advantage of this content the way they have to build their stock value. But nobody asked me. (laughs) So um, maybe that'll change, but it'll, it'll, you know, when you start at such a low place, it's like they say you never make more than your starting salary in, in a corporate job. And it's true, if you start at too low a place, even if you keep getting raises, it's really hard to get up to that higher place. I think it's going to be the same case with streaming rates. So that was a pretty long-winded answer, but I guess the short answer would be, yep, it's definitely <laughs> harder these days.
0: Yeah, does it does it frighten you in any sense? I mean, and I I, I asked that in in... In the sense of being a record label owner, do you do you feel that the industry is, is kind of scary for you, from your point of view, the way that the power has swung towards streaming services?
1: Mm, I don't know. Um, there's the, at the same time, it's created a lot of opportunities. So if you've got an artist that you know you want to get out there, there's a lot more ways to get it out there. just the way the record labels labels were filters for artists to get their music created there were a few publications and a few you know radio national radio programs and whatever that were the gatekeepers for us in terms of getting our music to the fan so now we can go we can reach the fan directly much more easily than we used to be able to so from that point of view i think there's cause for great optimism it's hard to stay nimble and like kind of i mean everything's changing so fast now to be aware of the best channels to reach your audience you really have to stay on top of it. But, you know, that's why, that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, having good partners is important for an artist because honestly create, being in your head in that space, in your mind, enough to create music, it's a completely different kind of mental exercise than keeping up with all the DSPs and all the marketing opportunities on those DSPs, not to mention the rest of it, the writers that still support this music and the publications that do and the retailers that do and the, you know, placement programs within those retailers and on their websites. And it's just, it used to be that you could push a button and hit the main things. And now, you know, you have to push thousands of buttons to get the same message across. But, you know, another answer to your question would be, you know, we're seeing a lot of corporate funds that that are incredibly bullish on the music industry. And so there's a lot of acquisition happening. So the wall street minds see a lot of opportunity as more and more people migrate to the digital platforms and the pipeline gets fatter and fatter, like more and more water's coming out of that hose. You know, they think that there's, evidently think that there's a lot of value in catalog acquisition. So I think that speaks to opportunity down the road. It's just navigating these transitions. It's, it's challenging.
0: You're listening to Inside the Banjiverse in conversation with Alison Brown. What's your work ratio like now, Allison? in terms of performance versus uh, the business?
1: <laughs> well, in 2020 or like in hopefully.
0: <laughs> in in, in uh, general, let's leave out 2020.
1: <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Um, well, it depends, you know, like sometimes, you know, I'll be like producing a record. And, you know, if I'm producing a record, then there'll be days when all I do is sit in the studio and produce someone's record, which is fun. And then in terms of our own touring, you know, we do, I'm not even sure how many shows a year or what we did last year. I've, you know, we maybe do 20 shows a year with our band. And then I've had the great fun of getting to do some um, shows on the Steve Martin Martin short tour, um, which is, you know, a completely other different kind of fun banjo exercise. Um, And then, you know, some other different collaborations too. I play occasionally with Indigo Girls or Amy Ray or some other folks. So, but overall, if you had to say, I mean, I get up every morning and I go to work usually, unless I'm on the road. So maybe it's, you know, 35%. Uh, the fun stuff and 65% the stuff I got the MBA for.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a pretty good mix, I think, for anybody that's in a nine to five job. They said, wow, 35% fun. That sounds awesome.
1: Yeah, I feel that way. You know, it's the, the two things really do inform each other in a good way. I find that like, you probably know this too. It's like when you get out on the road and you're just getting to be a banjo player, it opens your mind up in a different way where you can kind of have more creative ideas, even if they're You know related to business and so we find that a lot it's like getting out of Nashville and getting out into a different environment sometimes helps you think about solutions for like a different problem back in Nashville you know or a challenge on the business level
0: Uh, do you feel that you have failed utterly as a parent because your daughter is in uh, music college and not (laughs) not training to be a doctor
1: (laughs) no not at all Um, (laughs) it's funny, I guess that she picked the right parents if that was, that's her path. You know, I think that because I waited, like I, I was definitely an older mom and, you know, the experience that comes with years, it kind of makes it easier to be more open-minded. I think about the different career paths that a kid might take, you know, for my parents who, you know, had me when they were 25. So when I was making those, you know, kind of Big life decisions. They were still in their forties, um, and and coming from a different time too. The idea of like quitting your investment banking gig that thousands of dollars were spent in preparation for to play banjo that was just not great news, you know. But for me, at an older age, you know, knowing more about how you know different ways people make livings, and in a different time where you know the idea that you could start with a company right out of college and still be at that company in five years, it's like everyone knows that's a two year gig, you know, people just don't, companies don't have that kind of allegiance to their workers and workers don't have that kind of expectation too, you know, that they want to spend, you know, 60 years at a desk and then get the gold pen at the end. Um, so I don't know, I actually think that all those kinds of things have enabled me to be the kind of parent that's more accepting of whatever comes down the pike. And in my daughter's case, you know, she loves music, and she doesn't have as much of an academic bent as I did. So it makes perfect sense for her to be at Berkeley, and we know a lot of the faculty there, and the, the dean of the school also. And it's a great place. I'm actually more jealous than anything else.
0: <laughs> in you know, you you list off, uh, you know, Steve Martin, Martin Short, Indigo Girls, like it's a glittering array of incredible talent that you get to play with uh, and it rolls off the tongue so easily but like do you get nervous do you have self-doubt do you struggle with the oh my god i'm getting old i'm getting slow i'm you know i'm not good enough anymore or i was never good enough to begin with does any of that come into your uh, into your horizon at all
1: uh well i mean i think that we probably all have moments of self-doubt And I know that I have always, I don't really find them to be kind of age related, though. One of the things I've learned, like the longer you get to do this is you kind of feel like, well, I've made every mistake. And I kind of know that you get through it. You know what I mean? I think that you get a greater perspective with more experience. So like, what's the worst thing that can happen? You kind of can answer that question. You know, the show doesn't stop. You, you kind of know what to do. And I think that you, when you bring that experience to a gig like, you know, the S- Steve Martin Martin short show where, you know, you're playing, you know, maybe a couple of songs and you're kind of going from zero to 60 and then back to zero because that's the slot in the show. Um, you, know, you kind of know that you can do that because you've done similar things. I think it would be more nerve wracking if you were in your 20s and hadn't ever didn't have kind of that experience that comes with years and years of doing all different kinds of gigs, all different kinds of circumstances and knowing kind of what the outcomes were. You know what I mean? I'm sure it's the same kind of thing for you. Like you, you had a chance to play at the White House, which I know is like an incredible thing. I'm completely envious that you've had that opportunity. Like how, how was it in that moment playing for, you know, Barack Obama, it was, oh, and it, and how did your experience play into that?
0: It was incredibly nerve-wracking the, uh, but the actual playing was fine and it's exactly like you said, muscle memory you know, you got three great guys with you, you know immediately that the tune starts, it's going to be fine but I had to do a little speech beforehand and that was terrifying because you're aware of uh, the importance of the people that are in the room and you know, you want to say the right thing, but you also wanted to say something that's reasonably meaningful. Uh, so that part was terrifying. But it was an amazing experience. It really was. Loved it.
1: Well, I, I'd love to know what you said.
0: I talked about, and you see, we picked a piece of music that spoke to the influence of immigration. And it was music that was written by Irish immigrants that moved from Sligo to New York. And then, you know, which was completely unknown for Irish musicians to make a living and make a very good living in the U.S. as a recording artist, um, and that the influence that Irish musicians had in the development of old-time music and bluegrass music, and you have this, just this mixing of culture. And we 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 played some tunes that were written by a Sligo fiddle player that moved to New York in the early 1900s. And it was to talk about the importance of immigration and the positives that these things, you know, because it's such a hot topic and maybe now more than ever, uh, you know, and we got to play that same piece at um, Ann Arbor Folk Festival as well. Uh, and it was a really hot topic that time, you know, that that was a few years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very important to us. You see, it's very important to us musically that we're we're trying to cross boundaries and we're trying to bring people together. And I think that's a great opportunity in music.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I completely agree. Well, that's that's awesome. It was cool. Um,
0: I want to ask you about your banjo. And you know, you mentioned Prague uh, earlier. And I know that I, I held your Prussia banjo uh, when we played Merlefest together. And I was blown away with how unbelievably heavy it is. And like neither you nor I or Dwayne Johnson, um, but I have gone out of my way to get light banjos because even the heavy Irish banjo is crushing on the shoulders. (laughs) I'm like, how do you wear the Prussia banjo for an entire gig? It it sounds amazing, but it weighs so much.
1: (laughs) Uh, Oh, you lightweight four string players. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a secret part of our training as five-string banjo players. (laughs) It's kind of like the Marine Reserves. Every couple of years we have to go do shoulder exercises. Actually, my banjo, um, and I think they say pruka, at least in the, that's how I've heard in the Czech Republic. Um, So my pruka banjo really isn't any heavier than my Gibson Mastertone banjo. Um, And they're all kind of the same. I mean, yes, they're super heavy. Um, If you have a wide strap, it kind of helps. Um, there is a thing, a medical condition called Scruggs shoulder. <laughs> I think it kind of has to do with, you know, one shoulder, like being kind of like that kind of thing. Um, and, and it's, I don't know, it's painful, but the more that you do it, uh, the less painful it becomes. It's worse in high heels than it is in flat shoes. So no complaining <laughs> for the guys. Um, but my banjo does have, it has like an internal mic and it has a pickup. So there's some stuff hanging off the coordinator rods, but that's not really adding that much weight to it. I think that's just kind of the way it, the way it is. Um, you know, there are some makers that are making lighter banjos, but the tone ring is the big thing that makes the five string banjo sound the way it does. And I think like, that's one of the heaviest components of it, that big metal ring. So, I mean, you just got to you just gotta bite the bullet and go for it.
0: You hit the gym and get those uh, shoulder muscles working, I guess. Yeah. Do you uh, do you still practice a lot, Alison? And a uh, double barrel question, are you still trying to improve? Are you st- are, are there goals that you have musically that you're trying to attain?
1: Oh, yeah, totally. It's like one of the best things about this um, time of being home so much is just the little bit more opportunity to practice. I mean, business has been busier. Work's been busier than ever, but I have had more time to practice and I'm still like an aspiring, you know, jazz guitar player. And I've been taking jazz guitar lessons virtually, which has been super fun. And I've been working on a new record that, you know, I've written tunes to like try to challenge myself, myself in different regards. So, yeah, I'm completely, you know, not done trying to learn music. There's so much more that I want to learn, which is why I'm jealous that my daughter gets to be at Berkeley. You know, just, like, different ways to to find your way through changes, not so much in bluegrass tunes, but in, you know, jazz tunes or swing tunes and all, in this, all the great Irish tunes that I just feel like would be the perfect antidote to, you know, like, preventative measure against getting Alzheimer's. To me, is like, make yourself learn an Irish tune a day. Like, if you can remember all those notes, you're going to be fine, <laughs> you know? There's just so much out there, and the, the boundaries – um, just keep getting broader and broader for the instrument, you know? So I recorded a, a piece um, with the Chrono String Quartet that I wrote for this record. And, you know, the idea of collaborating with a string quartet's not really new for banjo players. I mean, Bela's done it. Jens Kruger's amazing player. He's done it, as have other people. But, you know, it's a, it's a challenge to figure out how to make your instrument fit sonically in a track like that and, and how to write a tune that's going to hold up to that kind of treatment and then you know how to per- how to you know perform it with the same lightness that they do so yes there's like a million things on my my to-do list for the banjo for sure hmm.
0: so what's your uh, writing methods what does that look like
1: hmm. um well sometimes it's kind of driven by a need like um, sure would be good to have a new song to open a show with or it would be great to have like the right kind of tune to open a record with and so then it's more a matter of thinking like logistically it would be great for it to be in this key or that key and it would be nice for it to have this kind of rhythmic feel and then kind of reverse engineering a tune so that's one approach and then that's more like the craft approach and then like the other approach is just when a melody happens to land under your fingers or in your mind, and then there it is. That's the super fun, um, inspirational approach. (laughs) So I'd say it's a combination of, of both things. And then sometimes I've found, like when I was writing tunes initially, after I left my banking gig and was trying to write tunes, it seemed like it was easier in a sense to write music because I hadn't written any. But once you've been writing tunes for a long time and made a lot of records of original music, then it becomes more challenging not to repeat yourself, and so I think that um, I think that maybe I'm a little bit more critical about what I actually, which ideas I actually pursue, and try to make them kind of achieve an, uh, you know, a musical objective for myself. If that makes any
0: sense. You're listening to Inside the Banjoverse in conversation with Alison Brown. Um, one question that I ask all banjo players, if you had an infinite amount of money, is there a banjo that you would buy?
1: You know, I'm so lucky because I have one of the Holy Grail Gibson banjos that I bought back when they were still very expensive, but not um, ridiculous, not so expensive that you can't couldn't get them. It's a 1937 RB3, about 1934, or no, 1938, sorry. It's a great instrument. And so that's the one. So if I had an infinite amount of money, I think that rather than buying one banjo, I would buy a lot of different other banjos. I really um, love the banjos from the 1800s, like late 1800s, the banjo orchestra banjos. I've got a couple um that were made by the Stewart Company and actually got one banjerine that Santa brought this year that was made by the Cole Banjo Company, a Man in the Moon banjo so they're smaller scale they were actually women's banjos that's kind of how they were marketed back then and um they're still you know incredibly playable and that blows me away after so many years you know i love those so i think that's what i would do i would just fill a room with all different kinds of banjos
0: <laughs> and then any banjo would sound awesome in that room with all of the reverberations of the other banjos right
1: <laughs> yeah that I, I would think so yeah for sure
0: yeah. What's your, uh, your greatest achievement and have you won our many huge dreams and huge goals musically?
1: Mm. Well, nothing like a couple easy questions. <laughs> um, huge achieve, huge achievements. Gosh, I, I'm not really sure how to answer that. I mean, I think that kind of, as you go through time, you know, you're just kind of putting bricks in the wall of what you're trying to build. And some of the bricks are little bricks. Like you went and played that gig down in Memphis and it turned out pretty well. And that's a little brick. Or you go to the White House and you play for freaking Obama, which I'm (laughs) so awesome. And that's a big brick, you know. Um, So I don't know. There's a lot of little and larger achievements that I'm proud of, I guess, you know, and then you... You know, a lot of people would say having kids and they're your best work and, you know, getting to be a mother and raise human people. That's an amazing thing, too. I guess professionally, you know, winning a Grammy, there's nothing like that honor as in terms of being something that's globally recognized as, you know, a really good bar to hit. So that was great. Getting to bring my parents to the Grammys that year was also incredibly memorable. Um, I guess if I had to pick one, that would be the one obvious one to to pick. But, you know, when I won Banjo Player of the Year um, in 1991, right after Richmond fell, as they say, um, that was an incredible moment for me too, you know, coming out of having only recently been an investment banker to kind of get that recognition from your peers. And I guess at the end of the day, that's really it. It's when the community that you've, you know spent your life trying to you know be a a good member of in turn recognizes you that that's those are really the sweetest moments
0: i mean that that's a wonderful answer and i i love your uh, building a wall analogy you know the little bricks and the big bricks i think that's a fabulous uh, that's a fabulous analogy um and maybe a, a lovely way to end alison it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and i can't wait until we meet up in person again hopefully not uh, in the not too distant future as we exit uh, our current well, i look forward to it yeah yeah and uh, <laughs> give my best here to to gary and my favorite line i think one of my favorite onstage lines of all time is when you introduce gary on stage and you say gary is the best bass player in his price range <laughs>
1: well yeah you know it's funny I I always say that and we were up in Canada um, playing at Celtic Colors Festival one year not too long ago and I introduced him that way and actually had someone come up to me after the show and say that that was a terrible thing to say and I should never (laughs) I should never demean him that way and show him more respect so I thought about that for a minute and then I have continued to say it since then <laughs>
0: <laughs> i love it i love it allison thank you so much yeah, it's yeah. Been a thank you for listening if you loved this episode please head over to our website we banjo 3.com to subscribe rate and do leave us a review it makes it huge difference. see you next time it's